All right, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. If you would, take your Bibles and turn along with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to change things up just a little bit today. And we're going to take a pause from our series in which we've been studying that Jesus is better in the book of Hebrews. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the ordinances of baptism and communion. You know, when it comes to these ordinances, um, we're going we're gonna to share, we realize that we've never taught on things that are a regular part of the life of a believer. We worship together and we see baptisms take place and we worship through communion and we realize that we never taught on that. And so our hope is that it will make those ceremonies so much more meaningful for us as they're part of our worship tradition. You know, when it comes to ceremonies, they are meant to be both sacred and meaningful. But if we aren't careful, ceremonies can become repetitive. They can almost lose their purpose. I had a friend who was a pastor in a megachurch, and he was the youth pastor in over the, the college and career age range. And so as people got engaged and began to think about marriage, who do you think they came to? They came to my friend Wes. And Wes would do an enormous amount of weddings each year, sometimes around 30 weddings a year. And you know how the wedding season goes. That means that there were some Saturdays where he did multiple weddings a day. And I'll never forget, this story followed Wes. And if you knew him it fit really well. Wes, one day, as he was standing doing what was most likely not his first wedding of the day, I think at that point he had graduated to no longer even using notes. And as he stood there with the bride and groom, he said everything just went blank. He lost his place, he forgot their names, and it was obvious. There was a quiet that settled over the room. And Wes, he's a pretty energetic guy. And everyone tells the story in this way. That as silence settled and no one knew what to do. Wes turned and saw the American flag and said, And so I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And to the republic for which it stands. And everyone just cracked up. I mean, everyone lost it. And they eventually regained their composure. He regained his composure. And then the wedding moved on. That story would follow him forever. Not exactly the sacred ritual that I'm sure that bride had hoped for. Um, baptism and communion. They are sacred rituals within the church. They're, they're ceremonies that are meant to be meaningful and purposeful. And uh, if we aren't careful, however, they will just become repetitive. They'll become meaningless. And so the big idea for today is simply this. Baptism and communion are meant to be reminders, not just rituals. They're meant to be reminders that God has given us 
rich reminders of the redemption and rescue that Jesus has brought into our life. And so our hope over the next two weeks, today we're going to look at baptism. Next week, Chris is going to lead us as we look at communion. And our hope is that during this time that our hearts will be warm toward Jesus in an even greater way. Last thing I want to say before we jump into Mark chapter 1 is this caveat. I understand and I get the fact that particularly baptism that we're talking about today is an emotionally charged subject. You say, what makes you think it's an emotionally charged subject? Well, I go back to the 13th and 14th century, and if any of you know your church history and you remember a man by the last name of Zwingli, you might remember that for him baptism was so emotionally charged the Anabaptists who refused to baptize their infants were baptized by Zwingli. He said, oh yeah? You want to baptize adults? I'll show you what baptism is. And he drowned them. We're not planning on drowning anyone today. Just so you know. But this, we understand, is an emotionally charged subject. It's been that way for centuries. And the last thing that I want you to do is to leave here today saying... I'm so mad at them. They said my baptism didn't count. Or for you to go home and call mom and dad and say, we did it all wrong. That's not what I hope will happen today. And I think what we will find as we study is that the meaning is far more important than the mode. And what I mean by that is that we don't need to go around saying, oh, you just sprinkle, we immerse, we're more into it than you are. We've got it right, you've got it wrong, you can't play in our sandbox. No, not at all. But that these are pictures, they're ceremonies of redemption that remind us of Jesus, our rescuer. So let's look. And today we're going to walk through the scriptures in a little bit more of a lecture format than we normally would. And my hope is that we'll go not to our traditions, not what we've known from the past, but that we'll just look at the scriptures and say, what do the scriptures have to teach us about baptism? Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let me just share this. I I learned this morning that our kids, um, our older elementary kids, are actually studying the story of John the Baptist. So moms and dads, be sure and interact with them when you get home. I'm pretty sure that Ben actually has some locusts in a jar for them to examine. So that should be fun. They'll have plenty of questions for you. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. They were related. And John shows up on the scene in all four Gospels preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. Uh, In the Gospel of Matthew, we actually learn a little bit more about John's message. He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand And people from all over Jerusalem and Judea were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. That's what uh, Matthew's gospel tells us. 
One thing that's interesting as I studied baptism, I see that this is the first common thread that we see in all of the synoptics. In all four of the Gospels, this is the first story that makes it into each of the Gospels. Jesus' birth doesn't even make it into some of the Gospels. But Jesus uh, being baptized and John coming out and preaching a baptism of repentance shows the importance of this picture. Now the question becomes, where did baptism come from? I've got three quick points I want to share with you today. And the first is this. Just very simply, where does baptism come from? Like we just read that John is this crazy, wild-haired man and that he is preaching a baptism of repentance and there's no background. Baptism, what is that? Where does it even come from? Was it something that John made up? The truth is, if you look at Jewish history, and you don't even see this so much in the Old Testament, it was so much a part of their history, so ingrained into their rituals and practices of worship, that baptism would have been common to these Jewish converts. Archaeologists find regularly, amongst any synagogues, they uncover old historical mikvahs. And I have a picture um, for you of an old historical mikvah. And you can see the steps that would lead down into what we would kind of think of as more of like a vertical bathtub. It was big enough for one individual. And I have a quote explaining the picture. It says, Immersion in the mikvah represents a change in status in regards to purification restoration, and qualification for full religious participation in the life of the community. Ensuring that the cleansed person will not impose uncleanness on property or its owners. So here's what the mikvah did in the life of the Jewish people. There were lots of rules and regulations. If you read through the book of Leviticus, you will be overwhelmed with all the times in which someone would be found unclean. For an individual to move from being unclean to being clean, they had to go through rites and rituals, a a specific time period. And so if you came in contact with a dead body, you were unclean. A, A woman after her menstrual cycle was unclean. There were all these over and over again, all these rules that said, you're unclean, you can't worship. And so in order to be able to move into the synagogue and to worship, you had to go through the mikvah. That's really interesting. And, and there were a lot of rules that went along with this. You had, to, you had to strip down. You were naked. You went into this thing. You couldn't even have your hair braided. Like water had to touch every part of you. Jews, as far as I know to this day, especially Orthodox, they'll still argue over if you're a hippie Jew, meaning if you have dreadlocks, there's still arguments over whether you have to comb those dreadlocks out before you enter the mikvah for baptism. This is a huge part of their way of life. Now John comes, and the, here's the key that you need to understand about baptism and a Jews' understanding of baptism. It was a change of status. It's a change of status. They went from being unclean, outside the community, outside those who could worship, and now they were clean. They're inside the community. They were able to worship. 
And John comes offering this baptism of repentance, and it looks a little different. More than likely, if you entered the mikvah, there wasn't room for two people. You would walk in and you would immerse yourself as you walked down in the steps. For John, he took on this whole different side of baptism. He was actually John the baptizer. He was baptizing people himself. It was this whole new perspective on baptism. You know, if you look at the story of redemption, it doesn't just begin with John the Baptist and Jesus. If you look at this story of redemption that runs throughout the Bible, God has been rescuing people throughout all of his story. When God chose to save Noah and his family from the flood, remember that story? He shut the door of the ark and brought them safely through the waters of judgment to new life. When God freed the Israelites from Egypt, he led them through the miraculously parted waters of the Red Sea to new life that was free from bondage. You see this theme of water all throughout the story. Even for those who would run from God, when Jonah chose to disobey God, the Lord lovingly pursued him. God brought him safely through the waters of death inside the belly of a fish that would spit him onto dry land where he would have the opportunity once again for life and obedience to God. All of these stories are Old Testament, in a way, seeds of baptism. These and many other stories, they form a backdrop, if you will, for the actions of John the Baptist. Baptism tells a story of deliverance from death to life. Baptism portrays a picture of our ultimate and final rescuer, Jesus. And so we see this picture of moving from death to life, a change of status. Now, secondly... What's the meaning in the method of baptism? Now, this is getting into the nitty-gritty. This is where it's going to go, hmm, that's something to think about. What's the meaning in the method? Look in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you're my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Baptism and communion are referred to throughout the church as ordinances or sacraments. Ordinances or sacraments. What's the difference? Uh, we have a Baptist background and roots, and so around here we say ordinances. Now, that's an appropriate name because if you think about them, they were ordained by Jesus. And so if he ordained them, then they're ordinances. But there are many Protestant churches who have shied away from the use of the term sacraments. Now, you may have grown up, if you grew up Roman Catholic, if you grew up Lutheran or part of the Reformed tradition, um, maybe Methodist, you may have called them sacraments. There are many churches who have shied away from that term because they want to be clear in distinguishing the fact that baptism and the Lord's Supper are not a means of grace. That these ceremonies are meant to remind us, but they are not a means of grace. That they do not convey grace to those who show up and partake in them. And so they've shied away from the use of sacraments. Either, either term is fine. Um, these ceremonies of redemption, they're powerful symbols. 
But we don't see that the Bible teaches that they convey grace. If you have questions about that, some of you will and some of you should. Because some of you don't even realize it, but you grew up in church traditions. I'm not going to name them where you were taught, maybe you missed it, that, that baptism or, or communion convey grace to you. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. Baptism doesn't wash our sins away. If that were the case, why would Jesus need to be baptized? We're reminded that we're saved by grace through faith. And so we're going to look more at why Jesus, Jesus was baptized. But baptism is a symbol and a sign. Baptism is a symbol and a sign. It's an outward sign of an inward change. So an example would be, I have a wedding ring. My wedding ring is an outward sign of what? Marriage. Uh, does it make me unmarried when I take this off? Am I out? No, I'm still married. Um, why? Because it's a sign of marriage. And in the same way, baptism is a sign of an inward change that's taken place within us. And so it begs the question, why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? Matthew helps us with that in Matthew 3, verse 15. Jesus' words, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does he mean by fulfilling all righteousness? That it is fitting. Does that mean that he wasn't righteous? In no way. Jesus saw his life as the fulfillment of all righteousness. And the fact that participating in a baptism of repentance, even though he had no sin, is part of what shows that righteousness that he wanted to fulfill. It, was, it wasn't required of him, but it would be required of every sinful man. And so Jesus was portraying for us the righteousness that he came to fulfill. And we see in that a beautiful moment. And I think that some of us have missed this over the years. And I hate that we've missed this. Because as Jesus shows up, he's been living life. He's been obedient to the Father. We don't know much about him. He's been doing what? Growing in wisdom and in statue and in favor with God and man. Probably been making his brothers and sisters pretty mad by this point, you know. Man, we just can't get the guy in trouble. There's nothing we can do. Mom and daddy's always love him, you know. So Jesus shows up and when he's baptized, there's something miraculous which takes place. The Holy Spirit descends upon him in some form and fashion that appeared almost as if to be a, a, a dove. Now you go back in the Old Testament, what does a dove remind you of? A dove was sent out from, the ark, from Noah in the ark. And we see that God is granting grace once again. We see that he is establishing, in a way, a new covenant in which he says, I'll never destroy this earth again by water. And in that moment, this is what we miss out as followers of Jesus. Our baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And our baptism is also a picture of the commissioning that Jesus has given to us. That Jesus says that you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that we, as followers of Jesus, that we are reminded in our baptism of the commissioning that we have received. We're going to look at that 
just a little bit more. So it begs the question, if we look at the meaning and the method, um, how should baptism be conducted? That's always a question. Because if I were to ask you to raise your hands, there would be a lot of different hands that were raised about how and when baptism was conducted, depending on your past church experience. And so what I want to do is not speak to your tradition or my tradition, but just to look at the scriptures and to tell you historically where the word baptism comes from and what it means. The word baptism means to plunge, to dip, or to immerse. It's not, you need to know this. It's not a religious term. If you go back and you look at the etymology of the word, a ship is going down, it's sinking. I said, oh, the ship's baptized. It's sinking. It's immersed. Some of the oldest uh, archaeological findings that we have in which the word baptism appears is actually in recipes. You say, what do you mean? Well, if you're going to make pickles, then you're going to baptize the cucumbers in the vinegar. Which means, simply, they're going to be dipped in the vinegar. They're going to be immersed. And so, it's not a religious term in and of itself, but it's more of a practical term, which means under the water. Because it shows the full burial of Jesus uh, which is what it represents. And so baptism means to immerse or to dip. A few ways that we can make baptism part of our daily worship. Because some of you are sitting and you're listening to this sermon. You're thinking, I've been baptized. Man, I could have stayed home today. I wish he would have told me he was preaching on baptism. I did that like 30 years ago. I could be at home reading the paper. I could be at home sipping coffee. Which NFL game's about to come on? But the truth is, is that baptism isn't this one and done ritual for us. I, I'm convinced that baptism should be a part of our daily worship. And, and let me describe it for you in this way. Uh, I think we take... God's grace and baptism for granted in the same way that we take clean drinking water for granted in America. I don't know if you've ever traveled outside of the U.S., but I've been a few times to, been to Haiti, I've been to Bogota, Colombia, to Uruguay, a few times to Africa. But I think it was in traveling to Haiti where this really, I, I realized it the most. It was 10 weeks after the massive earthquake that had rocked that little island nation. And while we were there, we quickly realized that the big bottles of water, um, you had to be really careful because they'd fill those back up with regular tap, which would make us as Americans sick. And they'd take a little bit, a drop or two of super glue around that ring and the top. And you would think, it's clean drinking water, it... It popped when I opened it. And it was a way that they were able to make money. But we had to be very careful. And so we had to go to reliable water sources. And then as we went out each day in order to put on medical clinics and to preach the gospel and to minister to people, we had to carry our own water with us. And I learned very quickly that when you run out of water, you're thirsty. And if your team runs out of water because, oh, I left my water bottle back at the house. I didn't bring enough water. Then all of a sudden, 
I found myself getting really angry with some of our team members. Like, you, you people need to learn how to prepare. We're in a third world country. There's just been an earthquake. You're going out all day for 14 or 16 hours. We're driving through Port-au-Prince. we got no water left. we got the police pulling us over. They're trying to haul off us off to jail unless they can get a bribe. you got no water. Come on, people. And I found myself getting angry at them. Why? Because we needed water. It was important to drink. And I realized, you know what? We take water for granted. Don't realize its importance. Our cistern broke on the roof because of some aftershocks. And so we were taking bucket baths to shower. I don't know if you've ever showered with a bucket bath. It's really unpleasant. And uh, you can't even stick your toothbrush under the faucet unless you want to be looking for some meds the next day. you got to grab your water bottle. We take it for granted. And in the same way, believers, those of you who are followers of Christ who have been baptized, I think we take our baptism, I think we take redemption, Jesus' rescue, and God's grace for granted. Let me just encourage you, in the same way that we discipline our lives, in the same way that we incorporate spiritual disciplines, not as a, as a means of grace, not to earn grace, but to remind ourselves of God's grace. What would it be like if every time you washed your hands? What would it be like if every time you turned on the shower or the tub, that you just said, I'm going to use this as a, as, a, as a ritual and a reminder of God's grace? I'm going to remember the way in which Jesus has been ever so gracious to me. I'm not going to take... His life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection for granted. I think baptism can be so meaningful even in our lives. But let me wrap up with this last point. Finally, who is it for? Baptism. Who is it for? Look in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. You probably just have to flip the page if you're in Mark. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus says this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The simple answer is that baptism is for everyone who loves Jesus. Baptism is for everyone who loves Jesus. But... It's also only for those who are interested in worshiping him by following him in obedience. Let me say that again. It's only for those who are interested in loving Jesus and in following him in obedience. Now some of you are thinking, so pastor, if I claim to love Jesus and refuse to be obedient to be baptized, does that mean that I don't worship him? And my response to that would be, I don't know. You should probably talk with them about that. But don't allow the conversations to go too long. And don't let it be too complicated. Because the stories that we see within the scriptures are easy enough and clear enough for a five or a six year old to understand. Baptism is the first call of obedience in a believer's life. Choosing not to be baptized is like a son who hears his father's instruction and says, Dad, I really respect you and love you, but I'm not going to listen. I'm going to do it my way because I'm wiser than you. 
That's what it means when we say, I don't really need to be baptized. And so the, the question, who should be baptized? And the answer is, all who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We see the pattern over and over again throughout the New Testament. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. It shows the internal working of what has been done within us by Jesus. It's an outward expression of the inner change that's taken place within our lives. Now some of you have a few questions because you say, now there's some things you haven't talked about. If you say, who is it for? You haven't talked about pedo-baptism yet. We haven't talked about baptizing infants. Right? And some of you were baptized as an infant. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, and here's why. Not because I think I can answer it in a minute or two. Okay? So I'm going to give a brief summary, and if you have questions, it's going to take a lot of conversation to get to the bottom of this. You're going to have a lot of questions, and so I'm just going to handle this really briefly. We see infant baptism that emerges from passages primarily like Colossians 2, 11 through 12, in which... In the same way that we think of communion as being connected to the Passover meal, there are many people within the Reformed tradition and others who would see baptism for infants being connected to circumcision. Now, as I read the scriptures, I don't see that. However, let me say this. I have lots and lots of friends who are much wiser than I am, who are very gospel-centered who are humble followers of Jesus, who believe in infant baptism. And let me be the first to say, I could be wrong, okay? But as I look in the scriptures, I always see baptism coming after salvation. You say, well, what do you do in the multiple passages in which it says, and their whole household was baptized? One person came to faith and the whole household was baptized. What do I do with that? I say there's not enough information there to allow those texts to lead us to infant baptism. In every one of those texts, except for Lydia's, in every other text, it says, and they believed by faith. It connects faith with salvation, and it comes after the mentioning of household baptism. You say, that's not enough for me. You go back and you connect it to Abraham. And I would point out that even with Abraham, when did the sign of the covenant come? When did circumcision come? It came after he followed God by faith. So I'll just leave it at that. You probably will have some more questions for me. Would love it if you do. Do we need to be baptized to be a Christian? This is a question that comes up far more often than you would think. Do we need to be baptized to be a Christian? Is it necessary for salvation? My quick answer would be I would just direct you, direct you to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, in which Paul writes, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The answer, very simply, is that no, you don't need to be baptized in order to be saved. There are churches, and there are plenty of churches, you'd be surprised how many of your friends attend a church that teaches baptismal regeneration. That baptism is connected to your salvation and that it's necessary for it. The quick and easy answer is look at Jesus and the thief on the cross. Did he come down? Was he baptized? Jesus' response was what? Today you will be with me in paradise. 
Now, those churches and those traditions are going to say Jesus wasn't declaring theology. He wasn't trying to teach a doctrine of baptism in that moment. I would just respond by saying that's one easy text, but I don't think Jesus was wrong. And there are a lot more that you can look at. Baptism isn't necessary for salvation. And so let me, let me say this. While baptism is hugely important, I don't believe it to be a primary doctrine. And what I mean by that is if somebody says we sprinkle and you immerse, I don't think that's something that we should part ways over. However, if you come from a tradition that teaches baptismal regeneration and you've been taught and you went into the baptism waters with the understanding that this is part of my salvation, I think you've got some thinking to do and some work to do. So the question becomes, do I need to be rebaptized? And that, this is true for a lot of people. If you were baptized as a child and you weren't a follower of Jesus, do you need to be rebaptized? I think the easy answer is yes. That's not an easy answer. I realize that. Because your baptism was very important to you and your family. And again, this is an emotional issue. I get that. But the scriptures always show baptism as a sign of an, it's an outward sign of an inward change. And it always comes after salvation. And so I would say if you were baptized as an infant and you're a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized as an adult, do you need to be? Yeah, I'd say you do. Something you ought to pray about. Something you ought to talk with friends about in your community. If you were baptized in a church with the belief that baptism provides saving grace, should you be baptized again? I'd say, yeah, you should. Because you now have a right understanding of God's grace. If you believed that baptism was a part of your salvation, then you believe that works brought your salvation. And so I would say, yes, you probably should consider baptism. And I would say it's not being rebaptized. I'd say it's just being baptized. Because I would say that earlier, things that you did, you might have gotten wet, you might have been sprinkled, it wasn't a right understanding. So I wouldn't call it baptism. Now, very practically, what about children? And this is, this is really important. What about children? What do we do with children? Are you saying children can't be baptized? I'm, not at all. Jesus says, unless you come to me with a childlike faith. And so I, th- I think children are, are ripe for having hearts that respond to Jesus. I was baptized, I think I was, I was young, I think I was six years old. And uh, I ca- had come to understand that there's a, there's a God who loves me, there's a Savior who died for me. I want to know Him, and I want to follow Him. Did I understand everything about the doctrines of the Christian church? Absolutely not. Did I have a desire to know God and spend eternity with Him? And was I, was I repenting of my sins? Was there a genuine sadness about the way in which I had sinned against God and gone my own way? Yeah, I think there was. And that wasn't something that was brought about through my own intellect. It was because the Spirit of God brought me to that point. And so I think absolutely children can come to know Jesus and be baptized. But my two Encouragements to you is don't be pushy and also don't be too slow. What do I mean by that? Don't be pushy. And so there, there are times in which you know, we'll be uh, too quick to push our kids. But also don't be too slow. 
Because there are also times in which our kids come to know Jesus. And then one thing that we'll be tempted to do as parents is we'll be tempted to put out some kind of measures in objectively in which we try to discern whether they've really come to know Jesus or not. And I'll just say there's no way to do that. I would encourage you that if there is evidence that your kids have come to know Jesus and have a genuine desire to follow him, then by all means encourage them. Now there are some parents that I've realized along the way in being scared that they're going to be too pushy, don't talk about following Jesus at all. They're way too slow. They say, I don't want to push my kids into something. I don't want them just to do it for me. And I understand that. But I also don't think that we say, well, little Johnny needs to learn about all these cars that are crossing the road really fast. But I want him to want to stop and look both ways. I want him to be willing to do that when I'm not around, so I'm not going to teach him to stop and look both ways before he crosses the road. How stupid would that be? And I want to encourage us as parents that when we think about our kids, absolutely encourage them to be followers of Jesus. Absolutely implore them to repent of their sins and to trust Jesus. Jesus was the one who said that hell is for all eternity and that it is hot and that it is a place in which we are far from him. He describes hell in the, in the most terrible of ways in which he says that the worm never dies as compared to the garbage dump that would have, etern- that would have fires that would just continually burn the garbage And so should we encourage our children to be followers of Jesus? By all means. By all means. Um, As we just wrap up today in concluding, uh, I think baptism is probably the most powerful preaching we do. I think baptism is probably the most powerful preaching we do. I think baptism is a far more powerful message than any sermon that you'll hear from this stage or any others. Because in it we see a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Two questions for you to consider. By the way, if you've been baptized, you're not off the hook. The first is this. Do you need to be baptized? Do you need to follow in obedience, proclaiming Jesus' work of forgiveness and redemption in your life? My friends Rick and Kelly... Uh, live in Nashville. They were part of our church plant there. Rick and Kelly, they, I, I love these guys. Um, I wish they would move to Memphis. Um, they grew up as volunteers. Uh, moms and dads, I think, were in the church or maybe even uh, pastors. Grew up just loving the Lord, following Him, came to know Him. They were volunteers in Young Life. And they both had genuine saving faith, had trusted in Jesus. Neither one had, never, neither one had been baptized. I don't know why. And uh, they want to be members of our church in Nashville. And we said, you need to be baptized. It's Jesus' first commandment, his first step of obedience. Be baptized. And, and they struggled with it. They said, we don't want to do it for the wrong reasons. We've been followers of Jesus for a long time. In our Young Life meetings, we would stand up and we would... People would give evidence of saving faith, and so they would go public, and teenagers would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and here's why, and how I came to know him. They said, we've done that. We feel like we've gone public. 
It's been years now. We've been following Jesus for years. We've led other people to Jesus. If we did it, it'd simply be out of obedience. We're sitting at a coffee shop in Nashville. I said, time out. I, blew I said, blow the whistle. Repeat what you just said, Kelly. It's like, like she stuck her foot in her mouth. It just, it just like this weight hit her. She said, if we did it, it would just be out of obedience. I said, is there any more that Jesus calls us to than to obey? She said, yeah, we're going to be baptized. <laughs> and it was beautiful. They locked arms. We baptized them in the river at the same time. One pastor on both sides as a couple. And it was an important point in their lives in which they struggled with. I talked to Ben Roberts this last week. He was baptized last year. He said, the whole time, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. I'd been a believer for years. I didn't want to do it. But it was just like something was drawing me. And if you talk with any missionary, they'll tell you that there is something. I want to use the term mystical. I even want to use the term magical. But really the term is just spiritual. But there is something about baptism. They will tell you demons show up at baptisms. They will tell you of wrestling people into the water. In which there is a spiritual battle that is taking place in that moment. You say, why? Because there is no greater sermon that is preached than in a baptism in which we see symbolically the inward change has taken place, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Do you need to be baptized? In two weeks, we're going to have a picnic here. Uh, I think Robert's dad's going to smoke some barbecue, and we're going to have a good time. We'll get some yard games going, and we're going to fill the tank up outside on the porch, and there's going to be an opportunity. If you need to follow Jesus through believer's baptism, we want to encourage you. Talk with us on your listening guide. And your tear off, right, I need to be baptized. Or I have questions about baptism. Would love to talk with you more about how you can go public in obedience to all that God has commanded for you. But the last question I want to leave you is this. Who will you baptize? I told you if you'd been baptized, I wasn't going to let you off the hook. Who will you baptize? You know, that you say, that's a really interesting question. It's really not. Here's the deal. Jesus grabbed ordinary guys. They were fishermen. They were blue collar. You look in the example of who baptizes. Look at Philip the Evangelist. He, he baptizes this Ethiopian eunuch in, in Acts chapter 8. And who was Philip? He was just a deacon in the church. We've established this tradition that bottlenecks the Great Commission. And the tradition is that only a pastor can baptize someone. That only a pastor could serve communion. I believe that those are ceremonies, that they are reminders that God has given to the church. But it doesn't mean that you couldn't baptize someone at your missional community. It doesn't mean that you couldn't, baptize, that you couldn't worship together with communion at your missional community. And that's why every time we baptize someone, we encourage that a believer who's been influential in their life and them coming to know Jesus, that they would join us. And so for Ben, when he was baptized, Jessica, his wife, joined me in baptizing him. My question for you, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you and along with you always even to the end of the age did he give that just to me 
Was that just my command? Or was that our command? I wonder who in your life that God has given you amazing influence with, would you join me imaginatively, creatively in prayer over these next few months, praying that God might give you an opportunity to baptize someone, to see someone show an outward picture of the inward change that's taken place in them, that they have moved from death to life, that they have experienced the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, and that they're now a follower of him. You may think this is kind of crazy. I hesitated about sharing it with you, but I want to be, I want to be authentic in my own struggles. See, I've come from church traditions where we would run a church like a business. We get people in the door by marketing and advertising. And we had formulas. And we did things not according to what was in the scriptures. We did things first and foremost according to what worked. And so I've been very hesitant at times. Especially about numbers. But God put something on my heart this year. God said, did you plant this church just to keep people safe and happy and healthy? Or did I call you here in order to reach people who are far from me? And I began to think, you know what? I want to begin to pray that God would do exceedingly abundantly above all that I ask and think. I want to share the gospel with people regularly. I want to lead our church in the Great Commission and doing it well. And God put a number on my heart, and I began to pray that we would baptize seven people this year. You say, why seven? Because I think that would be exceedingly abundantly above all that I can ask or think. That might not be a big number for some churches, but where we live and where we are, these seem like a big number to me. So I just started praying for it. And I'm still praying for it. And I want to pray that you would join me by God's grace. I don't know if that number is important or not. I don't know if God's going to meet it. But what I do believe is important is that we have a heart that desires to see people come to know Jesus. And here's where I was left. It's a number. If I don't have a number, if, I, if my goal is nothing, then that's probably what I'll get. Because it's never easy to follow the Holy Spirit. Because whenever you say, should I stop and talk to that person who's begging on the side of the road? Should I bake a cake for my neighbor or some cookies? These new people that just moved in. Whenever you think, I don't really want to do that, it's probably the Holy Spirit. If it's something that benefits the kingdom, if it's something you really don't want to do, but you see that it could benefit the kingdom, it's probably the Holy Spirit. And so if we're going to follow Jesus in his great commission, it means that we ought to have some expectation. And that we ought to pray with imagination. And so we've talked about this on multiple occasions, but I just want to encourage us as a church that even within our missional communities, that some of us have people who are not yet followers of Jesus. They need to be baptized. They need to go public in following him. That we would pray for those individuals. We'd write their names down. Stick them in a sticky note in your Bible. Make it a regular daily practice that you would pray for the hearts of men, women, some of you, even your own children who are not yet followers of Jesus. That they would come to know him. Let's pray together.